0: We are in are actually we're finishing up the series Wayward Son of 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 the the, the core question we're trying to answer with this series is who is eligible for God's kingdom? Who is eligible for a relationship with God? Who can be with God? Maybe some of you are like, man, church is just for church people. Church is just for religious people. I am on the outside looking in. In the past couple of weeks, we took a look at the uh, prodigal son story, what we know of as the prodigal son story. And, and, and we looked at, actually, I kind of like to call it the lost son's story. We looked at the first lost son. He was the reckless son. He pretty much gave his father the finger, took his money, and left. Hightailed it. And, and he spent it on reckless living. And he ended up saying, man, you know what, I've got a million to one chance with my father again. There's no way I can be a son. But I can be a servant. I can go home and be a servant. So the reckless son came home and what did the father do? The father completely restored the reckless son as a son. So who is a chance? Who is eligible for God's kingdom? Reckless sons and daughters. Because it's not built on our chances. But that was the problem with the responsible son. That was the problem with the second son. He thought that he could increase his chances with the father by being good and looking moral and working hard. He, at the same time, kept his nose clean and had a brown nose. All at the same time. And some of you know how to do that, don't you? Oh, come on now. Some of you do. Some of you do. Just ask your bosses at work, right? But the responsible son, what he missed was was that his chances with the father didn't increase just because he worked or was good. He was eligible for the kingdom. He was eligible for a relationship with the father just simply because the father was the father and he was the son and the father loved the son. And we're going to take a look at a different, a different wayward son this morning. And because it's Easter, we're going to have a story surrounding Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So if you missed the first two, that's okay, because we're going to be in a completely different story today. But in order not to assume a couple things, first to assume that we know kind of the details of Jesus' death, but that maybe you just don't know about his death, burial, and resurrection at all, I don't want to assume that you came in here and know his story. I want you to, as Jack said earlier, that this is the right place to come to get your facts straight. And if you don't know that, we want this to be the place that you come. Not Yahoo News, that's for sure. And here recently, you actually go to the, or to, the, to the History Channel, Sunday nights, right? Sunday nights, we don't have the History Channel, I don't know what time it is, but uh, Sunday nights. And, and, um, and what I've been hearing, an excellent job done by Mark Burnett and his wife, of putting together a, a documentary sort of thing about the Bible and going through the Bible. But this is the place we want you to come to get your facts straight about Jesus. But not just the facts about Jesus, but what he wants to do in your life, in my life. And his, his death and his resurrection isn't about, oh, that's nice, a guy did that. Wow, feel good, go home. It's about what he wants to do and what God wants to do with your life and my life because... He simply is God. And so it started on Thursday night with the Lord's Supper. The Last Supper is what we now know and we see the painting, you know, in our minds. And but that was to celebrate the Passover feast, the Passover meal, that thousands of years beforehand that, that, that God initiated that while the Israelites were in Egypt and told them, kill a perfect lamb. And put the blood over your doorpost and the angel of death will pass over your house. And sitting in that moment, sitting in that time with his his 12 boys just all sitting around, he celebrated that Passover meal with a keen awareness that he was the Passover lamb, that he was the perfect lamb that was to be shed, to put over the doorpost of our heart in order for the angel of death to pass over us. And then soon after that, he went out to the garden of Gethsemane to pray. And he prayed and he agonized and he stressed over what was about ready to happen so much so that he sweated drops of blood Making his flesh tender. And then soon after that, Judas came. One of his boys, one of his guys, one of the people that traveled with him for three years came and betrayed him and brought a mob to arrest him. And they arrested him and they took him to the chief priest's home in order to go through this mock trial. They just wanted to find something, anything. And they were giving false testimony and people yelling out stuff. And it was just this, this, this injustice moment. Finally, someone shouted out. He said he was going to tear down the temple and build it in three days. Oh, that's fast for me. Let's kill him. Let's send him to Pilate so that all Pilate will do will put his stamp of approval on this insurrectionist and that, that, that this guy is going to try and take over the Romans and he'll kill him without a doubt. And they take him to Pilate in the wee hours of the morning just as is waking up and, and Pilate hears all the testimony and he's confused about, about why on earth this man who seems to be innocent is right in front of him. I'm like I, I can't kill him. There's nothing wrong with this guy. He hasn't done anything wrong. You just have some sort of personal beef against this guy. Go kill him yourself if you want to kill him. She's like, we can't do that. You'd get on to us if we killed him. I was like, all right, fine. I'll send him up the chain. You know, the buck never stops here, right? I'll send him up the chain to Herod. Let Herod deal with him. Let Herod send him to death. And Herod Herod was excited. He'd heard about Jesus. He, he, He wanted to see Jesus do something miraculous. He wanted a freak show. He wanted to see something impressive. He was in for a great morning trick. But Jesus just stood there, not doing anything, not defending himself, not saying anything, just standing there. Herod finally got bored with that and sent him back to Pilate and said, ah, there's nothing wrong with this guy. I don't know what to do with him. You do something with him. Pilate, in one last attempt, thinking that, man, all these people want is blood. All they, all they want is blood. So I'll, if they want blood, I'll give them blood. How about Barabbas, this insurrectionist, this known killer, this is a mean, evil, nasty dude. If, if I bring out the worst of the worst I have in prison and he's waiting to be killed, surely they won't want him above Jesus. What do they do? Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. And I let this known criminal, known killer go. In order to crucify Jesus. So maybe in one last attempt to satisfy their bloodthirstiness. Pilate has Jesus flogged. It's just a whip with nine tentacles, with bone and metal in the tentacles. And a guy who whips Jesus thirty-nine times as rips his flesh off of his back. But they don't let off and so he gives Jesus over to the Roman guards to crucify him they put on a a mock clothing purple clothing in order to symbolize and make fun of his him saying that he's a king give him a scepter or a rod or staff Again, to mock that he's a king. Give him a crown of thorns and just beat it on his head to mock his kingly ship. And they get bored with that. They tell him to carry his cross, probably about a 150 pound beam, several football fields up a hill, up the hill of Golgotha, to the place where they crucified criminals being worn out, and weary from the, all the beating that he took, he couldn't carry the cross, and they, they brought Simon in to, to carry his cross, and when they got up to the top of the hill, they laid Jesus down on the crossbar and, and, and drove nails to his wrists, breaking bones and, 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 and killing nerves. They pull the, the crossbar up and Jesus up on the crossbar and let it down on the, on, the, on, the, on the upright beam and pull his knee or his feet together to put a, a nail through the top of his feet. And this is where we pick up the story. This is where we're going to dive in deep with the story of Jesus' death and his resurrection. Some of you you've been around church. You know the two thieves that were on the cross. That the that the, the, there were two thieves there with Jesus, at least two thieves, two criminals there with Jesus being crucified as well. We want to pick up the story in Luke twenty three. We're gonna throw the verses up on the screen, but if you want to follow along on your tablet or iPhone or smartphone, you can with the Bible out. But twenty three thirty nine. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Boy, that's kind of a predicament you're in. Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested. Don't you fear God? Even when you have been sentenced to die, we deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. We see two thieves. And we lift up the one thief, the second thief. And we like the second thief. It's a nice little story. It's a cute little story. Oh, Jesus saved the second thief in his last, little, last moments. And, and, and if we put ourselves into the story, we usually put ourselves into the good guy seat in the story, and we're like, oh, and Jesus saves me too. But if we put ourselves in the bad guy's seat, the guy that was despising Jesus, the guy that didn't care about Jesus, the guy that, that, that was defiant towards Jesus, because both of these guys are on death row. Have we put ourselves into his shoes? Because we've all been there. We've all been defiant of Jesus. We've all been defiant of God. We've all been there. And just in case we don't believe it, here's 11 different verses, but I could go on all day of verses from the Bible that shows how defiant of God we really are and were. Genesis 2 starts in the beginning. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. God tells Adam and Eve, you'll die if you eat of this. You'll die. While they kept living Physically, they no longer had relationship with the Father. Psalm fifty-one, five. David writes, "For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, I was a sinner from the moment of conception." you like, ah, that's great for David, but that's not me. Paul writes this: Romans five seventeen through nineteen. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death. To rule over many. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many become sinners. We are caught all up in this because of Adam. We are all sinners because of Adam. We all have condemnation on us because of Adam. We are all there because of Adam. John 8, 34, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. We not only sin, but we are enslaved to it. We can't get out of it. Romans 3, 9 and 10, well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, read religious or non-religious are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. We're all underneath this. No matter if you were born in church, literally born in church, it doesn't matter. We're all underneath the power of sin. Romans 2, 6, he will judge everyone according to what they have done. Because of our sin, God will judge every one of us. I don't know that there's anybody here that would want to stand in front of God all alone with nobody else to advocate us and to stand in front of him and say, yeah, go ahead and judge me based on everything that I've done and compare me to your holiness and your righteousness and your perfection. Imagine standing there before God and trying to make ourselves look good in front of him. Colossians 3.25, but if you do what is wrong, you'll be paid back for the wrong you have done, for God has no favorites. It doesn't matter. He has no favorites. It doesn't matter if we've grown up in church. It doesn't matter if we haven't grown up in church. He plays no favorites. We stand in front of Him being judged against His holiness for what we've done. Ephesians 2.3, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we are subject to God's anger, God's wrath, just like everyone else. That's what his judgment is, is his wrath. His wrath isn't an Old Testament theology that went away in the New Testament. It is pervasive in the New Testament as well. Revelation 21.8, but cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars. In case you feel like you can escape all the rest of it, I'm not an idol worshiper. I'm not in witchcraft. We're all liars. In case you feel like you can escape the rest of the list, I'll just wrap you all up in it. Because we're all liars, right? We've all lied. If you come to church this morning and say, I've never lied, liar. You just did. Their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. This is the wrath and the anger that faces us. And just in case we think we're exempt, if we claim to have no sin, 1 John 1, 8 and 10, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. We are all the death row son and daughter. We are all on death row. We are all there because of our sin. We are all the defiant criminal on the cross looking at Jesus and saying, yeah, go ahead. Save us. I don't think you can, but it'd be a pretty cool trick. In my dying minutes, I'd love to see a trick. It'd be great. I'd enjoy that. you might be going, man, it's Easter, bro. Aren't we supposed to be like happy? And leave here all feeling good about ourselves? The bad news isn't bad unless the good news is good. Let me reverse that. The good news is only so good as the bad news is bad. The good news is only so good as the bad news is bad. See, I think a lot of times we see our sin as inconvenient, as, a, as an annoyance, as kind of a bad spot on our, on our character, but we don't see ourselves on death row for our sin. See, the good news is only so good as the bad news is bad. And I want us to feel the weight of being on death row. On being the one condemned to die. On being the one that has God's wrath over us. For no good apparent reason, it's been a rough week for me. I feel like the only reason is is that God's just kind of giving me a taste of of being on death row and feeling that, 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 that weight upon me. And some of you may feel that way right now. Like, man, I didn't realize how strong of a weight that was. But there's another thief, right? And did you catch it? Did you catch it? that both thieves asked for the same thing. One was defiant, but both thieves asked for salvation. The second thief said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's no other way to come into Jesus' kingdom but through salvation off that cross. They both asked for salvation. So why did Jesus pick the second guy? It wasn't because the second guy defended Jesus. Jesus could have defended himself quite good at that point in time. After all, he's God. He told told his disciples, Man, I've got 12,000 legions of angels ready to go if I just say the word. He could have defended himself just fine. So why did he... Save the second thief because of faith. It's because of the faith that he had in Jesus. Never seen this before? I hadn't until I I was preparing for this. You see this? When you get into your kingdom, remember me, Jesus. Now, how loony is it for a guy on a cross that is going to die in a few hours, to say to another guy who is on a cross, who's going to die in a few hours, to say, hey look, when you come into your kingdom, just remember me. When you become king of your kingdom, just remember me. Just remember me. I bet the other thief had a heyday with that. What are you talking about? We're all going to die. This guy's no king. He's going to die. He cannot be a king when he's dead. What are you talking about? Fruit loop? I bet he gave, him, I bet he gave that guy the y four too. Like, come on. The second thief, <clears throat> something, somewhere, at some point in time, maybe he was in the crowd at the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe he was in the crowds when Jesus healed somebody. Maybe, maybe he was sur- at his trial and surrounding his trial because he was being tried too, and he was hearing everything that was going on. Something, at some point in time, when he got up on that cross, made him say, When you get out of this, remember me. Because he knew that in between the cross and him coming into his kingdom was going to be some sort of power that he couldn't do on his own. And he wanted to be a part of that power. There is something, something in between the cross and kingdom that was going to happen. And he knew it was going to, he just didn't know what yet. And when we're on death row, when we're in a grave, when we're in a pit, when we're in in a hell that we have dug ourselves, you're probably like, I don't know how I can get out of this and come into your kingdom. But if you have the power to get me out, I want to be a part of that power. And in his simple answer, Jesus shows this man exactly how he's going to get him out. What was his response? Today, you will be with me. Today, you will be with me. This is mercy. See, we have these theological definitions of mercy and grace and all this, and we're like, oh, that sounds good. We might aim in it, but we don't understand it. Mercy is simply looking at somebody's situation and having pity on them and having compassion on them, so much so that you will enter their world to do something about it. So what does he tell this guy? Today. Today. Not tomorrow. Not three days from now not three years from now, not, not three decades from now, today, you'll be with me. You'll be with me. My presence will be with you today. What he is saying is, I am right now actively crawling into the pit of sin to be with you. I'm crawling in to the grave, to be with you. I am crawling in to hell to be with you. I will be with you. And for some of you, that's all you need to hear. Because you're in the grave right now. You're in hell right now as far as you're concerned. And you need Jesus to crawl into that pit with you. Not to shout, Hey! I'm in here! I'm right here! I'll pray for you! Got you covered! I'm right here! Here's a rope! I'm right here! Here's a ladder! No. He crawls right down into the pit and says, Look. I'm going to go out and if you want to follow me, I'll get you out of here. I'll get you out of here. That's what salvation is. And that's what mercy is. He looks at our situation and says, man, you're in slavery. The power of sin, you cannot beat it. And I'll come right down in there. And if you want to follow me out of here, I'll get you out. Because we can't get out on our own. Some of us have dug and dug and dug and dug and dug and realized you can't get out on your own. Because did you catch this guy does want to follow Jesus? When you get into your kingdom, remember me? What good is coming into Jesus' kingdom without following him? I want us to pray, but I don't want us to pray the prayer. Because our sin is inconvenient and hell is hot. Is all of that true? Yes. But what Jesus wants is, I'm going to go right down into that pit, and you're going to follow me out. That's why he tells the guys, follow me. But that's not all that he said. Some of you Bible scholars are like, you didn't finish the sentence, man. You didn't finish it. Come on, finish the sentence. Okay, I'll finish it. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Why paradise? Some people have have asked that question and and, uh, some theologians, you know, they have battled over, you know, he could have said heaven, so why did he use paradise? Is this a different place? And is this different? And is that, or is it this or that? bunch of guys that are way too smart, that have way too much time on their hands. I think it's very practical. He could have said heaven. He could have said, today you'll be with me in heaven. But at that moment, dying on a cross, is the word picture of heaven or paradise a little bit of a better picture? What do you want? Heaven or paradise? What's What's our middle picture of heaven? squishy little guys little sashes harps clouds kind of floating there and we're going to be like them forever yes (laughs) thank you Jesus appreciate it what's our picture of paradise we say paradise you get an immediate immediate mental picture sandy beaches pretty water cool breeze off the water Palm trees, grapes, non-squishy females and little bitty. No, 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 sorry, sorry, sorry. Don't go there. Don't come back. Guys, come back to me. Come back to me. But that's the picture of paradise, right? What Jesus is doing, he's picking a word as far away as possible from dying on a cross to tell this guy what it's going to be like when he's there. That's all he's doing. That's all he's doing. And they're going, I can't think of a better word than paradise to tell you what it's going to be like. That's where you're going to be with me. What did the guy ask for? He asked for a place in the kingdom. You no know, cabinet position, judge, citizen, something. But just a place in the kingdom. But what did Jesus tell him? Today you're going to be with me in. Paradise. Jesus is giving him more than what the dude asked for. This is what grace is. Grace is somebody that has abundance giving to somebody in need, even though they don't deserve it. Somebody who has abundance giving to somebody in need even though they don't don't deserve it. That's what grace is. And that's what Jesus did with the guy. Uh, Can we all just agree that Jesus has a bunch of paradise? He's abundant in paradise. Almost so. Much, he probably has more paradise than what he knows what to do with. He's like, here, you're going to have paradise. You're in need of paradise right now, so I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you. That's what grace is. That's what it is. And Jesus wants to give you more than pray a prayer and get out of hell free card and then sit in church the rest of your life boring. He wants to give you more than that. Does he want to give you that? Yes. He wants to give you more than that. He wants to give you more than a place to go to. He wants to give you a brand new identity. That's what we're going to be focusing in on starting next week. 12 weeks about how God wants to give you more than what you can ask or imagine. By the end of 12 weeks, you're going to be like, okay, that's enough. I've had enough. All right, stop. Stop giving me more than I can ask or imagine, God. Twelve weeks of more than what you can ask or imagine. Should have put that on a flyer. Too late for that. That's what grace is, that he wants to give you more than what you can ask or imagine. Ephesians 3.21, glory to God who gives us more than what we ask or imagine because he does it within us. it's not about getting bling. it's about what He wants to do within us and giving us a brand new identity. And what we're going to be taking a look at next week, praise be to God for He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. I want to look at the blessings that God wants to give us and that He wants to give us a blessed identity. How do we find that? In Christ Jesus. The Christ Jesus that went down into the pit and said, follow me out. He wants to get us out of the pit. He wants us to look down in the pit. He wants to take the shovel, fill the pit up, and go, the mountain. I want to take you to the mountain. That's what I want to do. You asked to get out of the pit, I don't want that. I want the mountain. I want the mountain for you. I want you to have power. I want you to have life. I want you to have the mountain. So let's go to the mountain. We get to the mountain. And he goes, next mountain. It's usually a valley between the two. Next mountain. Stay with me. Follow me. We'll get to the next mountain. I want to give you life. I want to give you power. I'm going to give you righteousness. I'm going to give you everything that you never asked for. All you wanted was a get out of hell free card. I'm going to give you more than that. I'm going to give you brand new identity. So that you're in awe of me every day, and that my mercy will be new every day. That's what grace is. We can never graduate from this teaching. This is 101, 201, 301, 401, 501. This is Elementary, this is middle school, this is high school, this is uh, undergrad, this is graduate, this is doctorate. This is the teaching. This is everything. There's nothing more than this. We can never outgrow God's mercy and grace. And it needs to flood over us brand new every single day. And that's what God wants to do. See, this isn't just a story. This isn't just historical facts. This isn't just a guy that has died. This is God saying, I want to get you out of the pit. That's what I want to do for you. And when we get out of the pit, I want my power and my mercy and my grace and my righteousness and everything that I have to give you to be renewed every day so that today... We will be with him in paradise. You know what Jesus didn't say when you're dead? You know what Jesus didn't say yesterday? Jesus said today. His grace and his mercy is sufficient for today. Not tomorrow. Not yesterday. For today. And that's what God wants to do with you every day of your life. I'm going to spend 12 weeks looking at that. 12 weeks I'm so excited so as the fill comes up and we have a time of reflection as God is working in your heart are you in the pit have you never asked God to get you off a death row Because if you haven't, you're still in the pit. And just like the guy on the cross, all you have to do is go, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I believe you'll do it, so get me out of here, please. Please get me out of here. And for those of us that have been rescued from the pit, Where are you at in this journey? Where are you at? You filling up your hole? Trying to keep the hole uncovered? You journey into the mountain? Where are you? Let God's mercy flood over you like a river so that it's renewed every day. Work with Him as He's working in you. as you get to a point where you're ready, let the symbol of Jesus' blood and Jesus' flesh through the communion tables that we have in the front and back, let that symbol be a tangible symbol of His mercy being renewed every single day. And when you're ready, go partake at one of these stations. You, whether you're an individual or whether you're a family, go and partake. All I ask is that if you are yet to become a believer, if you've yet to ask God to take you out of the pit, please hold off because his blood hasn't covered that yet. You're still on death row. But we celebrate your honesty about that. But if it was five seconds ago that you asked him to get you out of the pit, celebrate and take that. So as they play, just simply take inventory. What is God saying and doing in you? And simply respond to him in prayer. Celebrate through singing. Celebrate his mercies through the taking of his flesh and his blood through the cracker and the juice. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for the fact that your mercy is new every single morning. I thank you for the fact that you did not leave us on death row. That you did not say just get up here. I want to see you try. That you entered into the pit and said follow me out of here. Lord as you are working in hearts let them surrender to you whatever it is you're working on. We thank you we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.